1: Every month of the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith. And then send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, October 2nd, 2013. Yeah, it's our light episode today, and uh, this will serve as another great, (laughs) well, comparison point, if you would. We play so many awful sermons here at Fighting for the Faith. We need a couple of days every week to get some good stuff into our heads, to clear things out, but you know, we've got some comparing comparing to do, yes. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, it's one of the ironies... Uh, of today's evangelical scene, if you would, is that if you ask the average seeker-driven leader, and I think that's the way to talk about them—seeker-driven leaders—that's what they—they're they, all about leadership, are they not? And in fact, so much so that they think that they can lead businesses and lead churches and movements and things like that. But if you were to ask the average seeker-driven leader, um, uh, if his sermons, <clears throat> and I'm using the word sermon in the broadest sense here, if the, you know, ask them about their sermons, if they were Christ-centered, they'd say, oh, yeah, I-, I preach all the time about Jesus. And then when you review their sermons like we do here at Fighting for the Faith, ser- Jesus is like the last person they're talking about. They're more interested in you discovering your dream destiny or your hidden purpose or learning how to hear the voice of God in the wind or, you know, in a still small Small voice somewhere maybe stick your ear to the ground and things like that and and you know jesus barely shows up at all and uh, barely gets honorable mention in most of these sermons and a lot of them that jesus isn't you know mentioned at all and yet you ask the you ask that leader oh yeah i we're all about making it so that people can uh, meet jesus and you're thinking how are they supposed to meet him if they don't know anything about him you know it's so, one of my big gripes here that I've had for the last five years, and so I kind of work from the idea that, you know, I, listen, I like to keep things simple. I mean, if you want me to meet Jesus, well, then I'm expecting you to actually preach about him. If you want me to know about Jesus and be like him, then you're going to be obsessed with, well, you know, preaching about Jesus and what he's like, you know, and things like that. You'd think that, that, you know, that these kinds of super simple ideas would uh, make sense with today's evangelical culture, but... Unfortunately, uh, <laughs> these simple ideas are really profound. Apparently, so profound that you know, you know, I s- make points like this, and people look at me like, "Uh, well, uh, we never thought of that." <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, so hopefully, uh, listening to this program will help you think about that. So, uh, what we uh, what we started last week, I said we're going to do a, a mini series, if you would, about five questions about Jesus by Doctor Sinclair Ferguson. Last week we did Jesus said what, and uh, and then we the next one was Jesus did that. Now they're kind of short lectures, but what you will find in these short little lectures is that they are packed with Jesus. Yeah, so you know you want to know what you know, a Lecture or sermon or teaching that's packed with Jesus sounds like, well, let me hold these out as examples of that, and uh, by which you can sit there and go, okay, now I see what he's talking about. Wow, that Sinclair Ferguson guy, he sure does preach about Jesus a lot, and it's like, right, and so should your pastor, and if your pastor doesn't, if he's preaching about himself... He's not really a theologian of the cross. He's a theologian of glory, and uh, and that's you know for something we'll have to save to unpack for a later time. But uh, today's episode of Fighting for the Faith it's our light edition. We will be doing the next two in this little mini series of five. And you're know, thinking, what am I going to do next week? I don't know. You know, I I can't do math. But um, today we're going to be listening to uh, the next two lectures: Jesus Who. And then we'll take a break, and when we're done taking the break, we'll come back and we'll continue with the, the next one, uh, Jesus Crucified, Why, is the name of the uh, next lecture. So without any further ado, kick up your feet and enjoy this. The, he, you're going to hear some Jesus preaching going on here. Here's Dr. Sinclair Ferguson in his lecture entitled, Jesus Who? Here we go.
2: Now, I want us to turn for our reading from the Bible this evening to the Gospel according to Luke. And we are going to read there in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Passage beginning at verse 18 and ending at verse 27. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, and beginning to read at verse 18. Peter answered, The Christ of God. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man, his favorite way of describing himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them, All, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, The Son of Man will be ashamed of Him when He comes in His glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. They say that one of the first lessons that is taught in schools of journalism is That you must always think in terms of questions. And that there are only half a dozen questions to which you really need to know the answer. Where, why, what, when, and obviously the answer to the question, who. And in our past two Sunday evenings, we have been thinking together about the answer to the what questions the what questions that relate to the life and teaching and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. What was it that Jesus taught? What was it that Jesus did? And it is time for us to turn to the who question and try and ask the Bible, try and reflect for ourselves on this great question, no greater question really, than the question, Jesus, who? Who was he? What was the meaning of his strange and at times enigmatic identity? Why is it, for example, that in this passage we have just read, when he asks his disciples who they think he is, that when they respond with this famous answer, Jesus warns them, not to be talking about this for the moment. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? Actually, if you were to read through the Gospels from the beginning to the end, especially Matthew and Mark and Luke, it would be very obvious to you that this is really the most important question of all to these authors. They design their Gospels in order, first of all, to pose that question, to make you think about it, to make you realize how important the answer to it is. And then, as they take you through the life and the times of Jesus, they help you step by step to come to the right answer. And as a matter of fact, this passage that we've read together this evening which appears in all of these three Gospels, Matthew and Mark and Luke, in somewhat different ways, this passage really serves as the hinge of the whole story of Jesus of Nazareth. It is, as it were, the center point of the whole Gospel story, where Jesus Himself raises the question, who do people say I am? And the question for his disciples more directly, Who do you say that I am? And if you listened with a little care to the reading of the passage, you would notice, I think, that it comes to us in three sections or in three stages. In the first stage, Jesus asks about popular opinion. And the passage tells us just a little about people's confusion about the significance of Jesus. It may be helpful for you if I not only try to answer the who question from this passage, but if I say just a little about the where question, because it's a very interesting one. We're told, you may notice in this passage, that Jesus was alone with His disciples. And actually, we happen to know, from the other Gospels that he was in a place called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi was away to the north of where Jesus was accustomed to being with his disciples and where the Jewish people were accustomed to being. It was far in the north. And there is, I think, very little doubt that Jesus had taken his disciples there for a rather specific reason. He had taken them there in order that in Caesarea Philippi of all places, he might ask the question, who do people say that I am? Caesarea Philippi in the past had been the center of Baal worship. That is the worship of the fertility God, the worship of nature. People who believed that the most important thing in life, if all was to go well, was that you should be in tune with nature. Indeed, that you should be in touch with nature and offer sacrifices to the God of nature. Give yourself to the God of nature. By a strange quirk, it was also the place where the Greeks believed the God Pan had been born the god Pan, who in the Greek pantheon of gods was none other than the god of nature. And the reason it was called Caesarea Philippi was because it had been named after the great Caesar Augustus, and indeed in Caesarea Philippi, a great temple had been built to Caesar Augustus as god. And so in many ways, this place, Caesarea Philippi, was not simply a literal geographical place, it was a kind of symbol. Just as I suppose if I were to say to those of you who are older, garbles, it would mean something to you, or if those of you who were familiar with London, I were to say, Soho to you, it would stand not only for a literal geographical place, but it would be a kind of symbol of something. Here Jesus of Nazareth has taken his disciples to this place that stands as a kind of symbol of pluralism in religion, of nature worship in religion. Belongs to the world of those for whom the highest name upon their lips is always Mother Nature. And into that context of paganism into a context which incidentally seems to have been going through a considerable resurgence in the last decade or so. Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, if you are going to be my disciple, the first thing you need to have clear about me is my identity. Who do people in general say that I am? Here we are in one of these great centers of world religion. Who do people say that I am? Do they associate me in one way or another with the worship of Baal, with the god Pan? Do they associate me in some sense as a kind of great heroic figure like Caesar Augustus? What are the people saying about me? Well, those questions are always relatively easy to ask, they don't come too near the bone, and so the disciples very freely said to Jesus, Well, Jesus, some of them seem to associate you with the great Moses, and there are others who associate you with the great prophet Elijah. Now, those two answers are very interesting for this reason. They show, if I can put it this way, that a little knowledge of the Bible can be a very dangerous thing. A little knowledge of the Bible can be a very dangerous thing. And most people, even today, possess that little knowledge of the Bible. Members of our congregation know that in a previous life I used to be a professor of theology, And it was my constant experience sitting on an airplane or in a train or being in some social occasion when people said to me, and what are you into? And you said, well, I teach theology. They were not slow to tell you everything they knew about theology, everything they knew about God, everything they knew about the Bible. Well, my opinion is this. Here is my view. This is what I think about Jesus. And almost invariably they displayed this great principle that a little knowledge of the Bible can be a very dangerous thing. Because if you don't have enough knowledge of the Bible, you'll never really understand who Jesus is. And these people had a little knowledge of the Bible. I can tell you exactly what texts of the Bible they knew. Probably not texts with which most of us are over-familiar. They knew a verse in Deuteronomy in which Moses had said, the day is going to come when God will raise up a prophet like me. And they saw Jesus. He seemed to be a great teacher. They said, this must be Moses. And then in the very last chapter of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi had prophesied that before the great and terrible day of the Lord, to which the whole of the Old Testament was looking forward to, God was going to send his prophet Elijah. And although some of these people weren't over familiar with the Old Testament, they knew that famous verse, just as most people still in this country know the 23rd Psalm. And if you say to them, who is Jesus, they might say, he is the Good Shepherd. They knew some of these familiar verses that everybody knew. But they didn't know enough of the Bible to know who Jesus really was, because he was neither Moses, nor was he Elijah, nor was he one of the other prophets. He denied it on more than one occasion. I am not any of them. And it's a rather startling thing, I suppose, for a minister of the Christian religion to stand up in a pulpit in our day and say, you would think I should be glad for any knowledge of the Bible, But a little knowledge of the Bible can be a dangerous thing. The only safe thing for you is to have a better knowledge of the Bible. And that is really what Luke is giving us here in his gospel, what the other gospel writers are giving to us. They are saying to us, if you have any thirst for reality if you have any desire to understand what the Christian faith is really all about, if you are serious when you say, I want to think about Jesus in an intelligent way, then come and read one of these Gospels and allow that dangerous little knowledge of the Bible to become a safe, true knowledge of who Jesus is. So there is a great lesson here for all of us. How amazing it is. It never ceases to amaze me how many people say in our modern world still, well, of course, you wouldn't really believe the New Testament, would you? And if you say to them, could you tell me ten of the books in the New Testament, they are covered in shame and embarrassment. the only reliable way to find the real answer to who Jesus is, is to read the evidence. And Jesus' concern about the mass of people who were confusing him with Moses and Elijah was the simple fact that they hadn't been looking at the evidence. And it is for that reason that the second stage of this story is the stage in which Jesus, for a moment, puts the crowd outside of the room, as it were, and now turns directly to those who have been near to him. Isn't this interesting? Those who have been intimate observers of his life, day and night. This passage actually begins with the almost paradoxical saying that Jesus was praying alone, and his disciples were with him. That was how near these men were constantly to Jesus, that even when he was alone, they were near enough to see that he was alone. And so he turns to them and he asks them the great question, but who do you say that I am? And if the first part of the story describes the people's confusion about the significance of Jesus, the second part of the story tells us about Peter's confession of the true identity of Jesus. Who do you say I am? You need to picture the occasion. It must have been momentarily a heart-stopping question. Who was going to answer? As I was reading This passage during the week, I was reminded of all things, of my Latin teacher at school. I had him, I think, for four years, and in the last year, in my sixth year, I was the only person who had him, and we used to meet in a classroom, and there were just the two of us there. And my Latin teacher had a rather idiosyncratic way of teaching Latin. Basically, he came into the classroom, and he did all the work himself. Never in history did he ever ask a pupil to do any translation. I don't know whether he knew how bad our Latin was, that he just didn't dare to ask us to translate, but he just never did it. And then I used to meet with him after lunch on a Friday afternoon. He sat on one side of the bench, I sat on the other. We got out our little blue copies of Virgil's Aeneid, and we began to work through the translation. And he always did the translation, I've never forgotten, the Friday afternoon when he sat down, He opened at the place where we'd finished the Friday afternoon before and he looked up at me and he said, it's your turn now. And I died inside. I just died inside. And here is Jesus with his disciples. They've been going along very smoothly. Some rough patches, he's occasionally rebuked them. But he has never asked them as direct a question as this. And I suppose if you know the gospel story, it's almost predictable it would be Simon Peter who would be the first to blurt out the answer. He says, you are the Christ of God. You are the Christ of God. What does that mean? You are the Christ, the Messiah of God. Well, it means very simply this. In the pages of the Old Testament with which Peter was familiar, there was an expectation that God would send a deliverer, a Savior, and this deliverer would sum up in himself three great offices which the people of God in the Old Testament had looked to as signs of God's dealings with His people. The prophet who spoke God's Word to the people, the priest who brought the people forgiveness of their sins by making sacrifices, and the king who reigned over them. And there was an expectation given to them in the pages of the Old Testament prophecies that someday, somehow, somewhere, God would send a deliverer who would be his final prophet, who would really show people who God really was. And a final priest who would make a sacrifice that would end all sacrifices because it would work to bring the forgiveness of their sins and who would be a king who would deliver them from everything that bound them. Simon Peter blurts out, that's who you are. I've been watching you. I've been living with you. And I've come to the only conclusion I think anyone who had been living with you could come to. And that is, you're the one God promised to send to be our deliverer. In one of the other accounts of this story in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus' response to Peter is a, an absolutely amazing one, he says, Peter, you're right. But you didn't work this out for yourself. It's not flesh and blood that have revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. As you've been living with me, as you've been thinking about me, as you've been watching me, as you've been trying to puzzle out whether what the people are saying is the truth about me or not, my heavenly Father has been working in your life, and now, as i 've challenged you, who do you think I am? quite spontaneously, it seems from your heart, because God has softened your heart and opened your eyes, you 've discovered who I really am, because I really am the deliverer God promised to send' it's been very interesting. Over the last three Sunday nights, as we've had three different people in the pulpit telling us a little of their Christian story, how those of you who have been here each Sunday night, you would be able to see the theme that's run through. It's not been planned by them or by me, but each one of them has really spoken about some period in their life, some particular time in their life, when exactly this has happened to them. And their eyes seem to have been opened to who Jesus really is. They've known about Him as the disciples had known about Him. But then the light has been switched on and they've said, That's who you are. Now I see who you really are. You've come not simply to be a kind of example or model for me. You've come to be the Christ, the Saviour. And just as for Simon Peter, it's not flesh and blood that has revealed this to them, but the Father who is in heaven. Do you notice that immediately Jesus goes on to say to Simon Peter and to the other disciples, you need to understand what this means. You need to understand how it is that I'm going to be the deliverer. And he tells them this in verse 22. He said, the Son of Man, as I said, his favorite way of describing himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, why? Why, when Peter has just said, you're the deliverer, we knew was coming. We never dreamt he would come in our lifetime, but you are the deliverer that God has promised to sin. Why does Jesus immediately go on to say to him, Peter, you need to understand that as deliverer, I'm going to be delivered into the hands of these cruel men and be crucified, and I'm going to rise on the third day. Well, for this very simple reason, the real deliverance he was going to bring was not to break the yoke, of Roman bondage under which these Jews were subjugated at that time but to break a far deeper bondage a far stronger bondage that could only be broken by His sacrificing Himself as an offering for their sin bondage on the cross of Calvary. And it was beginning to dawn on them that Jesus' true identity as the Christ of God was an identity of one who had come not to deliver them from political bondage, but to deliver them from a bondage within, the bondage to sin, the bondage to rebellion against God the bondage that Peter himself so often struggled in his own strength to break free from, the bondage to self and self-love. And it dawned upon Peter in this amazing moment that this was the Savior he desperately needed. But there's a third stage to this story. It begins with the people's confusion about Jesus' identity, goes on with Peter's recognition of Jesus' true identity, and ends with Jesus' call to all who would trust him to be totally committed to his true identity. Do you notice what he goes on to say? Then he said to them all, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, if anyone is going to be my follower, my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self? You see what he does? This is the evidence that Jesus is the real thing that these men, having committed themselves to Him as the great Savior, are now challenged rather directly about what is going to be involved by way of costliness if they are going to be His disciple. And that's always the case. When it begins to dawn upon you who Jesus really is, the next question that forces its way into your life is this. What about the cause? Isn't that true? When you encounter the living Jesus, as Duncan was describing him this evening, when you encounter him, and you know he's not merely a character in an ancient book, but he's a living person, a living Savior, a living Lord, The first thought that comes into your mind is bound to be, in our world, what about the cost? And Jesus spells it out. He says, the salvation I offer you is absolutely free because I am going to give it to you. But receiving it from me is bound to cost you everything. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, I don't need to explain to you why that is. You know why that is. Because you go out into the world out there and profess yourself to be a disciple and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know it's going to be costly. And your mind immediately fills with all kinds of thoughts you may be. At school, at secondary school, what are they going to say to you when they know that you're a Christian? I'm not too old to remember what it meant to step out into secondary school conscious that Christ had changed my life. And now it might change my relationships with my friends. And that's what Jesus is spelling out. He is saying, being my disciple may be an intensely costly thing for you. What will others say? What will others do? What will others think? What will I lose? Indeed, later on in this gospel, a few chapters later on, that thought was so obviously niggling away at Simon Peter's mind that eventually he blurted out to Jesus, Jesus, we have left everything to follow you. What about us? And Jesus gave him this tremendous promise. Peter, he said, hold on to this. No one has ever given up anything in being my disciple. No one has ever lost a friend because they become a Christian who has not received a hundredfold in this world and in the world to come eternal life. And it's true. I want to say to you, particularly if you are young, how costly it might be for you to give your life to Jesus Christ, to trust in Him as Savior. It is bound to be, as you think about that, that the implications of it may almost terrify you. What will they say at school or college or where I work? Or I want to say to you, and not simply out of my own experience, but out of the experience of many people in this congregation tonight, you never lay anything on the altar of sacrifice for Jesus Christ, but He doesn't multiply the return of blessing. And for every friend you may lose, because you are Christ's, He has promised you a hundred. And He never fails, never fails. Yes, there is a cost, and we need to face the cost. And it would be dishonest of me to say to you in inviting you to trust in this great Savior, it would be dishonest for me to say that life will become plain sailing. It may not become plain sailing, but I can promise you it will be full of new riches. And that's what Jesus underlines as He provides for us a great motivation for coming and trusting in Him. He says, look at it this way. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose his very self? That's the ultimate issue. Short term or long term? falsehood, or lasting reality. I was reading just in the course of this week the story of how around about the turn of the first millennium, around 1000 A.D., the Emperor Otho opened the tomb of the great Emperor Charlemagne, and as they opened the tomb, they found all kinds of magnificent riches In the tomb, but in the tomb, Charlemagne was still seated on a throne as a skeleton, and his crown placed still upon the skull of the skeleton, and his thorny forefinger pointed to a Bible that had been placed in his lap. To this very text, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? but in the process loses his life. That's the great thing about the Christian gospel, the great thing about Christ, the great thing about being a Christian. It's the one thing in the world that lasts into the world to come. That's why it's such a great thing. Even if you do it tremblingly, It's such a great thing to be able to say to the living Lord Jesus Christ. You are the Christ of God. My friend, I wonder if there is something in your heart that says a simple yes to this. You sense that He is here. You sense he is more than a figure in a history book. You know some of the Christians in this church. You know that this is simple reality that we are discovering here in this passage in the New Testament. And you can almost sense him sitting beside you, standing in front of you perhaps tonight. And now he's come to you and he's saying, now how about you? Who do you say, I am? Are you Are able to say, Lord Jesus, you're the Christ, you're the Savior, you're the Lord. Be my Savior, and rule over me as my Lord too. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, Together we thank you for the stories in the gospel that tell us about our Lord Jesus Christ and point us to him. We pray that you will give us just now a moment of quiet reflection. Give to us a consciousness of your presence with us. As countless numbers of men and women and young people have sat in this building before over many years and heard your voice speaking to them and calling them. We pray that you will speak to us and call us and help us to trust in Christ and to discover him as the great Savior he has promised to be and the wonderful Master, who is no one's debtor. We come to you to confess our need of your saving grace, because we are sinners. Our need of your power, if we are to follow you as our Lord. Our need of your friendship, that we may never be alone. Come to us, we pray. Help us to trust in you. For Jesus'
1: sake. Amen. Amen. All right, we're up on our first break, an only break this episode. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, Facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Quick break, and we come back. Lecture number two. Jesus Crucified. Why? Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Because only good theology leads people to heaven,
0: you're listening to fighting for the faith you're listening to pirate Christian radio We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> python's flying circus church hey do you want to feel holier than thou try bible thirst holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety With all new flavors like prosperity instant abundance it's like adding your bank account to an electrical store sound the alarm you're gonna be uncomfortably holy what's that you want mana well how about super mana Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, Slow down. They'd be like, no! And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You have so much holiness holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning. Chester, you have so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies and they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah in a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gabble on your afterlife. Jesus! Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you holy! (laughs) That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, Let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted new teeth. Oh, sorry, dear. I seem to have accidentally wrapped my spare (laughs) dentures. Here's your real present. Oh, look. It's a glow stick. We all know how much you like Star Wars, so we got you one of those lightsaber thingies. Oh. Thanks. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At Think Geek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio.
1: If your pastor says, oh, it's all about Jesus and then doesn't preach about Jesus but himself and all kinds of other stuff, well, then he's not really preaching about Jesus, and that doesn't make any sense. You need to find a real church. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. And, of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. And by the way, we're still on a, having our bake sale to make up for our summer slump in finances. And you can buy your 2013 Pirate Christian Radio t-shirt, which comes in either blue or red with a great design on it, good graphic tee, uh, by visiting our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash bake sale and pick up your 2013 Pirate Christian Radio T-shirt today to uh, help us <clears throat> make up for the shortfall in finances that we experienced over the summer. Okay, here's the last lecture today. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson again, lecture number uh, f- uh, what do we up to four in the series uh, entitled "Jesus Crucified: Why?" Here's Doctor Sinclair Ferguson.
2: If we had read not only these two chapters of luke 's Gospel or of any of the four Gospels, for that matter, but had actually begun this evening, we would have needed to begin much earlier if we 'd begun at the beginning of any of the Gospel and read right through to the end. I suppose almost all of us would have noticed something very unusual about these biographies of Jesus of Nazareth, and that is in the case of luke 's gospel something like eighty five percent of the story is devoted to only three years of his life. And even more remarkable, 25% of the story is devoted to the last seven days of his life. And the reason for that is exactly what the statistics would suggest to you, that the most important thing you can know about Jesus of Nazareth is what you learn about the last three years of his life. And the single most important thing to understand about Jesus of Nazareth is contained in the last few days, and as a matter of fact, in the last 24 hours of his life. When, as we have been reading, he was taken out, stripped virtually naked, and crucified in public. It was in order to focus our attention on Jesus' crucifixion that the Gospels were written. And it's very hard to take it in. At least, I hope as we read these stories this evening, that was one of the thoughts that might have passed through your mind. This is really not easy to take in. We do it nowadays behind closed doors or not at all. But they still do it in many parts of the world. They will line them up before a firing squad and execute them suddenly and swiftly. They will take them to a gas chamber or an electric chair and bind them there. And as humanely as possible, they will put them to death. They may put a rope round their neck and suddenly thrust them into eternity. But not so in those days. They were expected to be taken out in public, virtually naked, carry their own instrument of execution, have nails hammered into their hands, and to be stretched to asphyxiation on that wooden Roman gibbet in full public gaze, not behind curtains or closed doors, but utterly exposed, as you would have noticed Jesus was, to the taunting and the mocking of the crowd. And it's very hard at the end of this story of the man universally testified to be the most wonderful man who ever walked on the face of the earth it's almost impossible to take in that what they did to him was to execute him publicly as a criminal. And it's even difficult, I may say, you may be here in church this evening and not make much or anything of a Christian profession. I want to say to you it's even difficult for Christians to take it in. That what we are doing as Christians is following one who was executed publicly, semi-nakedly, despised as a criminal. And it's almost impossible to put the two bits of the story together. The story of this man whom we are told went about doing good. And the climax of the story, when he's treated as a public offence, And that's why it's important for us, if we're at all serious about thinking about the story of this great individual, to ask the question, why on earth was he crucified? And it's actually in order to answer that question that Luke, from whom we were reading this evening, describes these events in a systematic way. Because what he is really doing as he describes for us the story of Jesus' crucifixion is pausing at various individuals and groups of individuals and saying to us, now here's part of the answer to the question, crucified, why? I want us to think about what Luke is doing here as we work our way through this passage. He begins by focusing our attention on the person of Judas Iscariot, who, you remember, betrayed Jesus to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. And Luke tells us, part of the answer to the question, why did Jesus die, is this. Because Judas Iscariot had secretly rejected him. We are told in this passage how Judas had entered into negotiations, bargains with the religious leaders who were so hostile to Jesus, and they had agreed that for 30 pieces of silver, Judas would identify him. He would take them to the place where Jesus often went when he was in Jerusalem, and he would identify him in the dark. And Luke is really indicating to us that what was happening when Judas Iscariot was betraying Jesus was that his secret rejection of Jesus, which had been hidden, as a matter of fact, from everyone else except from Jesus' own penetrating understanding, this rejection of Jesus had already taken place days before. It was an event with a deep history. I wonder if you remember that story told in the Gospels of the woman who had the precious ointment and broke open her little jar of ointment and then poured it over Jesus' feet. And Jesus welcomed her deed and said, what she has done, what other people couldn't see, she has anointed me for my burial. He said, this woman has seen the real inner secret and meaning of my life. I've come into this world to die. I've come to be crucified and this woman's seen it and before I'm going to die, she's already anointed me with this precious ointment for my burial. And Judas Iscariot was standing there thinking to himself and then saying something quite contrary to what he was thinking. He said, you know, this money could have been brought together. We could have sold it, and then we could have given the money to the poor. And the other disciples who had been with him day in and day out for three years, they looked at Judas and they said, you're right, Judas, what a waste. What a waste this woman's involved in. We could have have done so much good with that money instead of just pouring this ointment on Jesus. And what they didn't see was that what Judas Iscariot was really thinking, was this. If we'd had the money in the bag, I could have had my hand in the bag because did you know that Judas was the treasurer of the little disciple band and he was already putting his money into the bag? And the whole story that comes now to a crisis, it really boiled down to this, that Judas Iscariot would rather betray Jesus than have his secret sins disclose, and in order to mask that and to veil that, he was putting on this show, this display of piety, he was saying all the right things, always beware, my friends, of somebody who always seems to say the right things rather than the heartfelt things he was prepared to hand Jesus over to the authorities to be crucified rather than have that thin veneer of religion, that thin veneer of piety penetrated and the sinfulness, the secret moral failure of his past life exposed. And yes, pardon. He would rather hand Jesus over to the pain of crucifixion than himself break through, by God's grace, the pain barrier of confessing his sin and discovering that there was forgiveness even for him in the heart of God. Jesus was crucified in part because repentance from his secret sin was too high a price for Judas to pay for forgiveness. I wouldn't be surprised if there's somebody in the congregation tonight who's in exactly that position. Secret, 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 secret darkness. And it leads to the rejection of Jesus. It is amazing that somebody would rather carry the pain of the burden of their guilt than experience the pain of its release in forgiveness. But it's such a real thing that in this case it led to the crucifixion of Jesus And in your case, it can for all practical purposes lead to the re-crucifixion of Jesus in the way you bar him from your life. Jesus was crucified because Judas had secretly rejected him and it came out into the open. And then Luke brings us to another individual, a very famous individual, King Herod, Jesus, we are told, died because Herod, listen carefully, had sinned beyond the possibility of repentance. You remember what happened when Jesus came before Herod? He was a man with a great history of earlier spiritual influence. He was a man who actually had had John the Baptist in his palace. Admittedly as a prisoner, but at an earlier stage, a couple of years before this, Herod had actually been so engaged by John the Baptist that he found at last, here is a man who tells me the truth about myself. It was a very amazing thing. There was part of him that hated to hear the truth about himself. There was another part of him that admired John the Baptist because he was the only man Herod had ever met who did tell him the truth about himself. The only man who wasn't always kowtowing to him and negotiating with him and seeking to curry favor with him. And John the Baptist had exposed the sins of Herod's life. And Herod had had found himself in a kind of spiritual struggle. There were times... When he felt that what John was saying held out to him a tremendous hope of deliverance from the moral sin and the shackles and bondage in which he found himself. But then he had caved in. He'd caved in to the desires of others. He'd caved in, actually, in part to his own lusts. And he'd had John the Baptist executed. John, you may know, was a relative of Jesus, and he'd had John the Baptist executed, and now he's got Jesus brought into him as a prisoner. What's he going to do? He's pretty excited. He's hard about Jesus. Jesus, the miracle worker. Jesus, the great teacher. And his spirits are high because he thinks he may get a performance out of Jesus. And so he begins to ply him with questions, pepper him with questions. And what does Jesus do? Jesus, listen, Jesus kept his mouth completely shut. Said nothing, not a word. Come on, Jesus, speak. Give us your gospel, Jesus. Show us a miracle, then we'll believe. And you see him surrounded there by these dignitaries egging Herod on. And he's utterly alone, utterly isolated. And he stands, as the prophet Isaiah said, as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he did not open his mouth. But he was saying something, wasn't he? He was saying to Herod, God's overtures of patience and mercy and love and grace and faithfulness and kindness are now finished. You, Herod, have sinned beyond the offer of repentance. And the evidence of that callousness of Herod's heart is fairly evident as Jesus stood before him. Would that silence touch his conscience? Would it remind him of all that John the Baptist had said and make him feel, Oh God, is there some way out of this terrible sin I've committed? Can I speak to this Jesus? Can he say some of the things to me that John the Baptist said? Is there some hope of forgiveness? No. No. He dresses Jesus up in a party king outfit and they despise him. They mock him. They play with him. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He's one of the few men that we read of in the Bible to whom God had nothing left to say. And that's why Jesus was executed. Because a man to whom God had exhausted all his overtures of love and mercy, was determined now to do away with God's last and best gift. There was a famous old Welsh minister a couple of centuries ago by the name of John Elias, and during one of his sermons he described an incident that he experienced when he lived in a little village. He used to love to go down to the blacksmith's shop, and the blacksmith had a new dog. He went down one day to the blacksmith's shop, and the great blacksmith was hammering away on his smith. Bang, bang, bang. And the dog was howling and screaming every time there was a bang. He went down again when he returned home three months later. There was the same bang, 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 bang dog was lying sleeping beside the anvil. That's possible. It's frightening, but it's possible. And one of the signs of it for us, for example, might be that we were able to listen to someone in the office, in the neighborhood, perhaps even in our own home, speak about their faith in Jesus Christ and play with them as though they were a clown. Jesus died because Herod had sinned beyond the possibility of repentance. Another figure appears, Pontius Pilate. Jesus died because Pontius Pilate lacked the courage of his convictions. You must have noticed in the reading of his trial before Pilate, how over and over again, Pilate seems to keep on saying the same thing. I can't find anything wrong with this man. Whatever was true about Pontius Pilate, he had some grasp of the justice of the Roman legal system. It was one of the greater legal systems of the ancient world. And he had a grasp of it. He was there in Palestine in order to administer it. And here he found himself with a prisoner who was manifestly innocent of all the charges that had been brought before him. And over and over and over again, Pilate keeps saying, this man has done nothing wrong. This man's done nothing deserving death. He's innocent, I tell you. And then we have this strange statement in the middle of the passage that he gave the crowd what they demanded. He gave the crowd what they demand. It's an amazing thing, really. A man with greater authority in this city than any other mortal. And he doesn't have the courage of his convictions to exercise the authority that's placed in his hands to stand up and to say, crucifying Jesus would be wrong. And so Jesus died because this man lacked the courage of his convictions. And, of course, Luke is telling us this story not simply because it's part of history, which it undoubtedly is, but because the very story kind of functions as a mirror of our own lives and of our own souls. The very story, as it were, says to us there are Pontius Pilate's everywhere that people speak about Jesus, who recognize the integrity of Jesus, may even recognize, as the Gospel writers tell us, that He is the Son of God, may recognize His right to reign over us and His authority to call us to be His disciples. But we just can't make it because of what other people would say or what other people would do. It may just still be true that the single greatest reason for you, if you are not yet a Christian, for you not being a Christian, is popular opinion, what others would think. It was certainly true of Pontius Pilate. Jesus was crucified because Pontius Pilate lacked the courage of his convictions. And then Luke focuses our attention on another group of men. You can almost in this story see them standing in the corners, slinking about first in the darkness, hurrying Jesus from one place to another. It's almost unbelievable because a good crowd of them are actually professors in the university. And they're still wearing their academic gowns. They talk with dignity in the senior common room. They discuss great points of theology. They are men who are able to weigh fine points of argument, and then this night when they are faced with Jesus of Nazareth, they behave like a group of wild animals. The ruling leaders of the Jews. Jesus was crucified because he exposed the truth about them. They had lied through their teeth. They had hired false witnesses, but they couldn't train them well enough to tell the same story. They twisted Jesus' words, and they spoke much about doing the right thing and love and patience and all the rest of it. But they became furious when they were eventually confronted with Jesus. And at the end of the day, it's almost unbelievable, at the end of the day, they preferred a revolutionary and a murderer. To this righteous man. And they took him out. And they crucified him. They all really were faced with the same choice. Trust him and crown him. Or reject him. And crucify him. And yet you know. None of these is the ultimate reason why Jesus was crucified. And throughout this story, Luke is giving us all kinds of hints that although, yes, these people in different ways are responsible for the death of Jesus, there is something far more profound than the influence of any one of these individuals or even all of these individuals as a group. There's something far more profound going on here. And he underlines it, as it were, with a red pen by pointing us, first of all, to the crimes with which Jesus was charged and then to the verdict which Jesus was given. Here's the heart of the matter. Here's the real reason for Luke why Jesus was crucified. You'll find it partly in the crimes with which he was charged. What was he charged with? He was charged with two crimes. He was charged with the civil crime of treason and the religious crime of blasphemy. He was charged with the civil crime of treason because he was saying he was the king. He was charged with the religious crime of blasphemy because he claimed to be none other than the Son of God. And the thing that's really significant about these two crimes with which Jesus was charged is that they are the very crimes of which you and I will be charged before the judgment seat of God. The charge of treason that we have made ourselves king rather than making God king of our lives. And the crime of blasphemy that we have made ourselves the center of the universe rather than bowing before the Lord God Almighty, as the center of the universe. And the really amazing thing that Luke brings out in his story is this, that over and over and over and over and yes, over again, Jesus is consistently declared to be innocent of these crimes. The 23rd chapter of Luke's Gospel begins with Pilate saying, He is innocent. And it ends, at least the part from which we read, ends with that Roman centurion gazing on the lifeless body of Jesus and saying this was a righteous man, wrongly crucified. He was innocent. And as we read this gospel story, as Luke is encouraging us to begin to understand who Jesus is and why Jesus died, what he is really wanting us to see is this. But the crimes for which Jesus experienced this terrible judgment are the crimes of which we stand guilty before the judgment throne of God. And the reason why, though declared by human judgment, never mind divine judgment, to be innocent, the reason why, declared to be innocent, he is crucified for those crimes is because the death he dies has been ordained by God not to be a death he needs to die for himself, but a death he needs to die for those who are guilty of these crimes, not before the judgment throne of any Pontius Pilate, but before the judgment throne of Almighty God himself. The reason Jesus died is because there was no one else good enough to do it. Little children who learn a famous hymn know that. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. There is a green hill far away outside a city wall where the dear Lord was crucified, who died to save us all. Oh dearly, dearly, has he loved and we must love him too and trust in his redeeming blood and try his works to do. My friend, it's so simple, a child could understand it. He takes God's judgment against my sin. And having borne that judgment, God says to me, You are forgiven. Go free and live in my presence and for my glory. I was thinking earlier on today, of the man who at one time was minister in this congregation and who one night as he preached from this very pulpit as a young teenager, I sat up there in the gallery and came to a living faith in Jesus Christ. And he describes how he himself first came to that living faith. As in Easter week, many years ago, he began to understand the significance of this story. And he saw in all of these figures, in Judas Iscariot and Pontius Pilate, in Herod and the religious leaders, he saw in a sense in all of these individuals and groups a mirror reflection of himself. Realized his own need not to reject Christ but to come to faith in him. It was Easter Day in Reims in France in 1945. I remember waking up that morning and a friend of mine, an American officer, came into my room in the hotel where we were billeted in Reims. He said, it was Easter Day. Would I care to come with him to an American service? I had no desire to go, none whatever. But because I had such a high regard for this man, I went. As far as I can recollect, I was the only RAF person there. It was an American chaplain who took the service. I don't remember anything at all of what he said, but at one point in the service, a GI, a Negro in the choir loft, got up and sung the spiritual. Were you there when they crucified, my Lord? Were you there when they crucified, my Lord? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified, my Lord? I had heard that sung hundreds of times. Indeed, I would sung it myself. But on that day in Reims, as the Negro soldier was singing, I realized for the first time, really for the first time, not as a theory, but on the pulses of my life, what the cross was about, I realized for the first time that day that Christ had died for me. And I remember thinking, That if my hand had helped to crucify him, then also I was there when he prayed, Father, forgive them. I was involved in Calvary, and I was involved also in the forgiveness of God through Christ. The words are those of the late Tom Allen, but my friend, the Christ tonight is the same. Fifty-four years. And he can be yours. You just stretch out your hand and you say, I don't fully understand all you have done for me. But I do begin to understand as you expose so graciously and so privately the secrets of my life and the sin in my soul. I see that you have died for crimes for which I deserve to be judged. You've taken my place and I claim you as my Savior and I give myself to you without reservation forever and forever as my Lord. Crucified, why? He was crucified for me. That's why. Let's pray together. Lord, as in this service we have read together and been moved by the wonder of the story of the passion of our Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is not hidden away or locked up in a book, but that he who bore our sin upon the cross of Calvary has risen from the grave and is alive forevermore. And as we are all conscious, as present here in this building, in this room tonight, in a way we can hardly begin to understand, we know that we have been listening to a voice that is not merely a human voice and a story that is not merely in the past of history, but that he is here and that he is speaking to us and in all the confusion of our need and in our sin, we come to you, Lord Jesus Christ, and we say, Save me too, and be my Lord. We ask this in your name.
1: Amen. Amen. So, what'd you think? I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at com. or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash fire christian. Or follow me on Twitter. My name there at Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.